So as it turns out, it is actually very difficult to adequately defend the proposition that an entire class of human beings can be set aside for slaughter. As such, pro-choice advocates commit a bevy of intellectual fallacies. Pro-choice arguments tend to be rife with inconsistencies. However, many pro-life individuals today are not trained to recognize and call out these problems. So today we're going to examine five bad ways to argue for abortion and give you the pro-life response to each of these missteps in pro-choice logic or illogic. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. So welcome to Unaborted today. Thanks for tuning in and coming here to get equipped to learn about how to engage on the front lines of the pro-life movement and equip yourself to be a voice for the unborn. Today, the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at five bad ways to argue for abortion. And these five ways that we're going to examine are going to basically exhaustively cover all of the category mistakes, each of the each of the ways that the pro-choice movement makes mistakes in their reasoning when they argue for abortion. This is gonna cover literally every argument you're ever going to hear for abortion. So you can identify the different category mistakes and fallacies that those who support abortion make when they argue for abortion. Now, does anyone here remember Roseanne Barr? Okay, alleged comedian and actress. And in an HBO special years ago, she said this. You know who else I can't stand is them people that are anti-abortion. I hate them. They're ugly, old, geeky, hideous men. They just don't want nobody to have an abortion because they want you to keep spitting out kids so they can molest them. Ooh, very funny, very funny, alleged comedian Roseanne Barr. Now, suppose Roseanne Barr is right, okay? Let's just grant her everything she said. Suppose she's right that anti-abortion people are basically all just men. They're old, geeky, and hideous. And they literally want to stop abortion so that they can molest more children. Suppose she's right. Does anything about what she said discount the pro-life message? Does anything about what she said discount the pro-life position? The answer is no. There's an old law school saying that says, when you have the facts, pound the facts. And when you don't have the facts, pound the table and do it loudly. <laughs> In other words, make a big stink and create a narrative that's focused on something else but the heart of the matter because you actually don't have facts to back up the heart of the matter. You actually don't have facts to back up your position. So you're just going to scream loudly, lambast your opponents, and resort to personal attacks. And this is one of the fallacies we're actually going to examine, of course, which is ad hominem attacks. And that's exactly what Roseanne Barr did in this special. And of course, there are dozens of examples of this today. The demonization of pro-life individuals rather than the attempt to maybe, I don't know, demonize their arguments, participate in the marketplace of ideas, participate in debate and determine which ideas win the day, which are better and which are worse. And that is indeed true. While the pro-choice movement is largely relativistic and subjectivistic by saying that there is no such thing as objective morality, suddenly they think that pro-life ideas are objectively wrong. So yes, some ideas are better and some are worse. 
And so we're going to look at five bad ways people argue for abortion. And this is important because guess what? There's a lot of table pounding going on out there. There's a lot of table pounding going on today in our political and cultural climate. Even right now in the pro-life movement where we're having a lot of big strides for success with policies that will save the lives of unborn children. This has made the pro-choice movement increasingly more angry. And so we have seen these five bad ways to argue for abortion more frequently than ever before because of how elevated the country is on the abortion debate. So we're going to categorize these for you so that you know how to respond and be equipped to be an ambassador for the unborn, a voice for the unborn, and, and a soldier for unborn children against those who want to continue the legalization of their killing. But first, I want to tell you about our show's first sponsor. When it comes to marketing, business owners today are inundated with options. Everything from public relations to branding, social media, email marketing, videos, podcasts, websites, everything that you need to promote your message, it's such a confusing wilderness of choices. And it's easy to spend a ton of money on what you think is a good idea only to find yourself on the wrong path. So with Marketing Trail Guide, they are here to help. This is what they do. They help business, they help B2B businesses get clear on their objectives, define attainable marketing goals, design that strategic marketing map to get there, and put the systems and resources in place to reach their goals. You can think of them as a virtual chief marketing officer. Now, if you want to get a free marketing evaluation, go to marketingtrailguide.com. That's marketingtrailguide.com. So you can get out of the marketing wilderness and on the right path to take your B2B business to new heights. That's marketingtrailguide.com. Don't try to do this yourself. I've tried to do it myself and I repped the whole thing because jack of all trades is indeed master of none. So go to marketingtrailguide.com. Trust the experts to take your business to the next level. So as I said, we are going to look at five bad ways people argue for abortion. But before we do that, let's review the pro-life argument. Okay, let's review the pro-life case. What do pro-life individuals believe? Because as it turns out, each of the five bad ways the pro-choice the pro-choice community argues for abortion avoids addressing the pro-life contention, the pro-life case. So what is the pro-life case? Let's review it briefly. This is what pro-lifers believe. We simply maintain that the science of embryology indicates that from the earliest stages of development, that means the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. And you'll find this language in any embryology textbook on any college campus. Okay, so that's the first thing the pro-life argument in case says is that babies are humans and unborn babies are humans. And that human being began at the moment of conception. This is plain undisputed scientific fact. But science doesn't prescribe moral behavior. Science doesn't tell us how to live. It gives us biological facts that may inform decisions, but it doesn't prescribe moral behavior. So we turn to philosophy to make an argument for the value of the unborn child. We know what species they are, they're human beings, but how do we argue for their equal human value in comparison with born people? Where pro-life advocates argue basically a natural law perspective according to philosophy, which just says that, hey, listen, there's no meaningful difference or value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. In other words, there's no value-giving difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that makes it okay to kill you, the embryo. And the only differences between the unborn and the born are size, 
level of development, location, and your dependency. And guess what? Unborn children differ from newborn children in the same ways that we differ from one another. In other words, you and I probably differ according to size, level of development, certainly location, and dependency, right? If you're a teenager, if you're a kid, you're a lot more dependent than I am because your parents are still paying your bills. So born people differ according to the same ways that unborn children differ from newborns. So those differences can't be used to justify abortion or else they can be used to justify killing born people. There's the pro-life argument. There's the pro-life case. It's a case for the humanity of the unborn and the value of the unborn child. Now, did any of the remarks by Roseanne Barr refute that case? Of course not. Of course not. No, instead of responding to the argument and offering a counter-argument, she says, you're a man. You're a geeky, hideous old man who wants to molest children. Well, guess what, Roseanne? Arguments don't have sexual organs. If I offer a defense, an argument for why abortion is wrong, the way to engage in dialogue is to say, no, you're wrong because X. <laughs> Not pointing out that the proponents of the pro-life position are male or that they're geeky, hideous, or old. So this is one of the examples, right? So each of the five bad ways to argue for abortion avoids responding to that pro-life case, that basic pro-life case I just laid out. And you need to be aware of that because these examples are more and more common right now in our American public discourse on the issue of abortion. So let's look at the first one. Here's the first mistake that pro-choice individuals make when they argue for abortion. They assume rather than argue. They assume rather than argue. And this is a logical fallacy called begging the question. Maybe you're familiar with this, begging the question. You beg the question when you assume the very thing that you actually have to prove, that you actually have to illustrate in order for your case to work, in order for your argument or your statement to work. So for example, if I look at you and I say, have you stopped beating your brother yet? Have you stopped beating him yet? What would your response be to that? If you've noticed, you're kind of stuck, right? You're kind of tricked. Because if you say, no, I haven't stopped beating my brother yet, you're, you're admitting that you, you beat your brother. If you say, yes, I have stopped beating my brother, you're acknowledging that you used to beat your brother. So you can't answer that question without admitting that you beat your brother. So I've tricked you. I've caught you. But what if... What am I trying to prove by, by wording the question that way? I'm trying to prove you beat your brother when I say, have you stopped beating your brother? But what do I have to prove in order for that argument to work? That you beat your brother. I have to prove that you beat your brother. I can't just merely assume that you beat your brother and then ask you if you've stopped beating him. You see, I begged the question. I've assumed you beat your brother without proving that you beat your brother. That's what pro-choice individuals do eight times out of 10 when they argue for abortion. This is the most popular fallacy that we're going to look at today. So what are some examples of this? Well, here are a couple. You may have heard a pro-choice individual or friend or family member in your life say, say, listen, you know, Frank, I, I appreciate your position. I appreciate you, you know, not yelling at me, but listen, you can't tell women that they can't get abortions. You, you can't just come in and impose your morality and tell them that they don't have the right to get an abortion because who are you? How dare you? That's a private issue. You would never intrude 
in their reproductive decisions. How dare you intrude in the decision to get an abortion because you see that's just a reproductive decision. And that's a private matter only for a woman to make and, and her partner if she chooses to include him. Now at this point, you can expose the assumption by smiling and responding with this question. Should we allow parents to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? It's a privacy concern. How dare you intrude into the family discussions that happen in the living room with a married couple regarding whether they're going to slit the throat of their toddler? That's a private issue best left to families to decide in the safety of their own home. Now, at this point, what's your pro-choice friend going to say? Oh my gosh, I can't believe you suggested that. That's disgusting. That's so wrong. Why? Why is it wrong? And they're going to say, because toddlers are humans. You can't, you can't use privacy as a justification to kill toddlers. Ah, I agree. So apparently, the issue was not privacy. The issue was what is the unborn? Because your friend is willing to accept an argument from privacy to kill unborn children, but he's not willing to accept an argument from privacy to kill born people. So what have they assumed? They've assumed that the unborn is not human. That's what, that's what makes their case work because they reject every other application of privacy to kill born people. But suddenly they accept the application of privacy, the rationale of privacy to kill unborn people. But you think killing people is wrong. Oh, it's because you don't think the unborn is a person. See? So there's an example of begging the question. Here's another one. Your pro-choice friend or family member might say, well, well listen, Fred, I, it's so wrong for you to assume that every family member can afford to bring another child into the world. What, what, about, what about a family who has five kids and the mother has a condition where she can't work. They can't afford childcare. The father's working two jobs. He's getting five hours of sleep. They're barely paying the bills. And she gets pregnant. You would force her to have that baby? They can't afford to bring another child into the world. And then you respond with a question like, should we allow parents to kill their toddlers when they get expensive? Well, of course not. You can't do that. Why not? Well, because toddlers are humans. You can't kill humans. Exactly. So if it's unacceptable to kill born people because of financial struggles, it's equally unacceptable to kill unborn people because of financial struggles. And the only way that your pro-choice friend could make the argument that financial struggles is an adequate justification to kill unborn children is by assuming that the unborn is not human. But in order for that argument to work, he has to prove that the unborn is not human. So he's begged the question. He's assumed the very thing that he needs to prove. He's assumed rather than argued. This is the first mistake pro-choice people make. And one of the most popular forms of this, before we move on to mistake number two, is back alley abortions. Maybe you've heard this argument. The argument goes something like this. Abortions need to remain legal because if they're made illegal... Women will be forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics and they're going to die by the thousands because these are rusty instruments. They're maybe not qualified doctors. They're going to be ripping through the line of the uterine wall and women are going to die and bleed out. You won't imagine the bloodshed of unsafe abortions, right? Okay, so I'm going to show you how this argument begs the question. 
because this argument is actually tantamount to saying that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. And to illustrate what I mean by that, I'm going to use this story, okay? I want you to imagine for a second that you're, you're, you're tuning into the news and you found out that a couple bank robbers have successfully robbed two banks in the county you live in, okay? You're very concerned about this. You're keeping your ears out for more news. And the following morning, you catch live coverage of these two bank robbers attempting to rob another bank. What ends up happening is as they're running out of the bank with bags of cash, a armed citizen attempting to stop the injustice pulls his gun and shoots one of the bank robbers in the calf. One of the bank robbers gets away, leaving his buddy, and the other guy's bleeding out on the side of the road because he got shot. Now, who in their right mind would say, oh my gosh, you know what we need to do, right? We need to legalize bank robbery. Because bank robbers are getting hurt or killed in the process of doing something immoral. Now, if you would reject that argument, which I hope you would, then you should reject the argument that says abortion needs to remain legal because if it's made illegal, women will be forced into dangerous back alley abortion clinics. So this argument essentially says because some people die trying to kill others, some people die would be the mothers, trying to kill others, their unborn children, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. That's a deeply immoral argument. And if we would reject legalizing immoral behavior because some people might get hurt doing that behavior, such as with bank robbery, then you should reject this argument for abortion. It only works by assuming that the unborn is not human. You wouldn't accept this in any other situation. What about school shootings, right? School shootings are illegal. Should we make them legal so that less people are getting hurt, less people are getting wounded? Of course not. So these arguments assume that the unborn are not human. Before we move on to the second argument, I have an exciting announcement. This fall and spring semester, in partnership with Students for Life of America, I am going on the road for my university speaking tour entitled Abortion is Genocide. Now, my fall semester is already booked. However, I am currently booking for the spring in California, Washington, and Texas. And so if you want to bring this exciting speaking tour to your university campus next year, let me know. Reach out to me through my website, sethgruber.com, and we can find a date. The idea of abortion being genocide is very intentional because we have to examine the issue of abortion in the larger historical context of genocide. Because genocide always entails the dehumanization of an entire victim class so that you can convince a society that they're not really full persons. And if they're not really full persons, maybe it's acceptable to kill them. This is what the Germans did with the Jews. And this is what white racists have done with blacks. And now we're doing it with unborn children. And the end result is always the same. Dead, innocent human beings. And over 60 million unborn children have been killed through legalized abortion since 1973 through a recycled worldview that says, well, those people over there aren't really persons. So that is an important conversation and lecture to bring to your university campus. So reach out to me, let's book that at your university. And now we're gonna move on in just one second to mistake number two, but we'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Unaborted. So as we just examined, one of the first mistake pro-choice individuals make when they argue for abortion is they assume rather than argue. They beg the question. They assume that the unborn is not a human being, 
But you kind of have to prove the unborn is not a human being if you're going to make an argument that we should be able to kill unborn human beings. The second mistake is that they confuse objective claims with subjective ones. They confuse objective claims with subjective claims. Now, this is important because pro-life individuals are not claiming that abortion is wrong because they dislike it. We're not claiming that abortion is wrong because it gives us a queasy stomach or we have just personal qualms against it. The pro-life position is that abortion is objectively wrong for all people at all times and in all places because it violates rational moral principles. That principle being it's always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And that's what abortion does. That's what pro-life individuals are claiming. And so there's a difference here between objective and subjective claims or preference and moral claims, right? A preference claim is, is my preference. It's, tr it's, a, it's a claim that's true about me, right? An objective claim is, is something that is claiming to be true for the object, the, the thing being said, not the person, objectively true, period, right? So I'm going to make two different claims and right, you'll, you'll see the difference between these two claims. So if I say, well, vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate ice cream, you might disagree with me, but obviously that's a preference claim. I'm just saying something about what I prefer. So it's subjective. It's true for the subject, me being the subject. But if I then say it's wrong to torture toddlers for fun, all of you go, no, that's wrong. It's wrong to torture toddlers for fun. And if I say, well, no, 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 maybe it's wrong for you to torture toddlers for fun, but, but for me, it's, it's right. You would say, well, no, you're, you're objectively wrong, right? So that is an objective claim. That's a moral claim. So the second mistake is that pro-choice individuals confuse objective claims, like abortion is objectively wrong, with subjective ones, right? So when we say abortion is an indefensible act of violence that takes the life of a defenseless unborn human being, do you know what pro-choice individuals often hear? Oh, okay. Pro-lifers don't like abortion. Got it. You don't like abortion. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying it's objectively wrong, period, regardless of whether I like it or not. And yet this has led to the popular bumper sticker. I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen it. Don't like abortion. Don't have one. Don't like it. Well, just don't have one. As if the moral question of abortion hinges on preference, hinges on whether I like it or not, but it doesn't. It hinges on the fact that it's objectively wrong because thankfully as a society, we still accept the premise that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. It's the second premise that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being that people take issue with. And of course, that's where we make our argument. But the pro-choice movement doesn't respond to that argument. They treat our objective argument as if it's just a preference claim. But if we were to apply this to any other scenario, you know that pro-choice individuals would immediately dismiss this type of reasoning, right? What if I said, don't like spousal abuse, don't beat your wife. Hey, Seth, you need to stop beating your wife. What you're doing is wrong. Well, hey, just you don't beat your wife. Let me do whatever I want to my wife. You would say that is ridiculous. That's wrong, right? Well, if abortion kills a baby that's a human being like you and I, that it's objectively wrong regardless of how we feel about it. So we pro-lifers have to be clear by saying, no, 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 I'm not making a preference claim. I'm saying it's objectively wrong for all people at all times and in all places, and here's why. Because the science of embryology teaches us it's a human being, right? So we can make our case there. The third mistake that pro-choice individuals make, and that was exemplified by Roseanne Barr, is that they attack rather than argue, right? So they resort to ad hominem attacks about their opponents that they don't like 
rather than responding to their arguments. And so in response to this, we as pro-life individuals simply have to ask the question, suppose what you say about me is true. Hey, Roseanne, suppose that I am a geeky, hideous old man that wants to molest children, which is like probably the most extreme example you can come up with, which is why I used it, obviously. Suppose all of that is true. Does any of that refute my case that the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being from the moment of conception, according to the science of embryology, and abortion intentionally kills that human being in the womb? You know the answer. The answer is no. Nothing about attacking pro-lifers' characters or your perceived, your perceived version of their character discounts their arguments. And so here's some examples of this, right? This is how you see this all the time. And maybe you've had these type of accusations levied against you by those in your life who support abortion. We're told it's hypocritical for pro-lifers to oppose abortion unless they're willing to care for the woman and the child, right? So in other words, you can't even be pro-life unless you're willing to adopt five babies, unless you're willing to, to kick out your grandma who's living with you so you have a spare room for a pregnant woman who doesn't have anywhere to live. Only then can you be pro-life, right? This is the argument, that we don't really care about the women and the ch children because what are we actually doing with our money to house them and pay for their bills? And so therefore, if you're not doing that, you're a hypocrite if you say we shouldn't kill babies. But this is like saying, you can't oppose me beating my wife unless you're willing to marry her. You can't tell me that it's wrong for me to beat my spouse unless you're willing to house her and marry her. I mean, what? What, what, a, what a ludicrous suggestion, right? Because that's actually objectively wrong to beat your spouse. That's like objectively wrong. And if if you oppose me beating my wife, but you're not willing to marry her, that's okay, right? You don't have to adopt a certain level of personal responsibility to care for my wife to tell me that I'm wrong to beat her. Of course, I don't beat my wife, but, <laughs> but right, that has nothing to do with the moral question. You can be opposed to spousal abuse without marrying the spouses of your friends that they're beating. <laughs> this is obvious. But when it comes to abortion, the whole narrative changes because they're treating the unborn as something less than human. And because they can't make the case that the unborn is not a human, they're gonna attack the character of pro-lifers or create a perception that they have ugly character. Another example of this is, of course, the attacking of men, right? Because you're a man, you should shut up on abortion. It's a woman's issue. Now, this is, this is obviously an ad hominem attack, but it's also a sexist attack, right? You're, you're literally discounting my position because I'm a male. That's sexism. If you say, because of your gender, what you have to say doesn't matter. That, that, is, that is basic sexism. <laughs> so, so th but yes, this is so popular to discount the position of men. But as Frank Beckwith said, arguments don't have sexual organs. Arguments don't have sexual organs. And if, if men should be silent when women choose to have their unborn children killed, then according to that reasoning and rationale, women should be silent when men molest and rape little boys. And I talked about this in my Real Men or Pro-Life episode recently. Because that would, be a, that would be a male issue. A male adult is molesting a male boy. That is not a female issue. It's a man's issue, so therefore women should shut up. If you think that's ludicrous, and it is, then it's just as ludicrous to say that men have to shut up 
on the decision of their wives to kill their unborn children simply because those men are not the correct gender. Lastly, if men should shut up on abortion, then Roe v. Wade should be overturned immediately because there wasn't a single woman on the Supreme Court in 1973 when abortion was made federal law, when the access to abortion was made federal law. But the pro-choice movement actually doesn't care about gender. They only care about ideology because if you're a pro-life man, you have the wrong ideology. But if you're a pro-choice man, you have the correct ideology. So you're welcomed into the pro-choice community with open arms. See, so this is all just one big sham. But because they can't respond to the pro-life case that babies are babies, they're biologically human and abortion kills an unborn baby, they're going to attack and resort to ad hominem attacks. So they attack rather than argue. That's the third mistake. And I'm sure you'll see this all the time. Now, before we go on to mistake number four, I, I want to tell you about the importance of this show, right? This is an important contribution to the pro-life movement. Not necessarily because everything I have to say is amazing, but because of the situation we find ourselves in, where the country is more and more divided, and yet there's a rising tide of pro-lifers rising up to go to bat for unborn children. We need to be equipped to engage, and that's what the show Unaborted does. So if you want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the pro-life movement, get educated, get equipped to engage, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted. Patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. This will help me be able to bring this amazing content to you and, and, and debunk pro-choice thinking. Greg Cunningham, a colleague and friend of mine and one of the leaders in the pro-life movement once said that there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. Saving them is costly and part of this show is a contribution to saving children because as long as pro-life advocates and people of faith who oppose abortion are not equipped, they're not educated to engage, then they're not going to engage. <laughs> they're not going to feel equipped to do so. But if they're equipped to engage, then we will create an army of pro-lifers who are compassionate, equipped, engaged, and educated to be a voice for the unborn. That's what this show attempts to do. So consider becoming a patron of the show. And with your help, we can expand the reach of the show, increase our production value, bring on guests who have amazing stories, far better than mine, of what they've done for unborn children and uh, provide a one-stop shop for pro-life individuals like yourself to get education, equipping, resource, training, and humor so you can go back out and be a voice for the unborn. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So as I said, the first bad way that pro-choice individuals argue for abortion is they assume rather than argue. They don't prove the unborn's not a baby, they just assume. The second is they confuse objective claims with subjective claims. Thirdly, they attack pro-lifers rather than argue. And fourthly, they, be, they hide behind hard cases like rape. And this is probably the most popular argument that you'll hear for abortion, right? Is because of rape, we need abortion. But they hide behind the circumstances of rape to justify their position that abortion should be legal for any reason or no reason at all through all nine months of pregnancy. So this is a total sham of an argument because the pro-choice philosophy, friends, is not that women have a moral right to abortion 
when a rapist impregnates them, their philosophy is that women have the moral right to pay a physician to kill their baby at any stage of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. That is the pro-choice position. And if you're a pro-choice moderate and you don't like abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, good luck because the Democratic Party and the pro-choice movement as a whole believe in abortion to the day of birth. This is the pro-choice position. So they pretend like they support abortion because, well, some women are raped and they'll need abortion. But that's not, that's not their case. Their case is abortion for any reason or no reason at all. So it's a total sham. And you can expose this sham by asking this question. Hey, pro-choice friend. If I granted abortion in the case of rape to you, would you join me or be willing to join me in fighting to oppose and end the 99% of all other abortions that aren't from cases of rape? And what's their answer? Their answer is no. They say, well, no, I believe abortion is a fundamental women's right. Oh, okay. Then why are you hiding behind rape to justify your position that abortion should be legal for any reason or no reason at all? So that is, so thirdly, it's a total sham and we should expose that sham. As such, secondly, this argument appeals to the exception to argue for the norm. And I just illustrated that briefly because according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch, 1% of women cited abortion as the reason for um, rape as the reason for their abortion in 1987. 1%. And in 2004, less than a half of a percent of women cited rape as the reason for their abortion. So we are talking about a super minority. And yet the pro-choice movement, they appeal to that half of a percent to justify their position for abortion for any reason or no reason at all. So they hide behind statistical exceptions to justify their support of abortion in any circumstance. <laughs> so that is again, clearly intellectually and statistically dishonest. Thirdly, appealing to abortion or appealing to rape to justify abortion is an actual deep perversion of justice. It's a deep perversion of justice. Here's what I mean by that. In what other circumstance would a pro-abortion advocate accept the murder of a child because the child's mother was brutally abused? Because Billy's mother was was beaten up, we should kill Billy, who's four years old. What a horrific, debauched, and disgusting suggestion. And yet that is exactly what is being suggested when someone says abortion needs to remain legal because what if a woman was raped? Now, one of the most popular forms of the argument for abortion from rape goes something like this. Well, what if the baby looks like the rapist. This was a child that this woman was forcibly impregnated with and that baby will very likely look like the rapist and that mother will be forced to look into the face that resembles her rapist for the rest of her life and that will be that will be emotionally traumatic to put it lightly and you pro-lifer are going to force her to do that. You're disgusting, right? That, so this is the argument for abortion from rape. But what if we applied that standard to, to born people? What if we applied that more broadly? If your reason is that we need to abort babies that look like their rapist father so the mother won't have to suffer looking at a baby that looks like a rapist, then 
it seems like we would want to make sure that we didn't abort any babies that didn't look like they're rapist. If this is the standard, right? So if this is the standard, what if, or what about the babies in the womb conceived in rape that look like the spitting image of their mother? Because then, according to your standard, she wouldn't be emotionally traumatized because the baby wouldn't remind her of the rapist. The baby would remind her of herself because the baby looks like her. So in order to make sure we don't kill any babies or abort any babies that don't look like their rapist father, let's let all of these babies be born. Okay, let's let every baby who was conceived in rape be born. And then here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do in order to satisfy this pro-choice standard. We'll give the baby one or two years because baby's facial features change a lot in the first couple of years. At two years old, if the baby looks significantly like the rapist, then we'll just dismember the baby. We'll just decapitate the baby. That's just, remember, because we don't want mothers to be traumatized by a baby that looks like the rapist. But then if the baby looks like the mother, we'll let the baby live. Yay, human rights, justice. Every pro-choice individual is going to give you a vomit-induced face at that suggestion. And good for them. That is a disgusting suggestion. And yet they just said that it's okay to dismember babies in the womb because they might look like their rapist father. But some of them won't. Some of them will look like the mother. But they don't like where that reasoning leads or where that solution, where that solution actually leads. So if we examine this argument and we look at the different parties involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape, the answer is that there are three. There is the, the mother who is raped. There is the rapist and there is the unborn child, right? There are three parties involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape. So let's ask the, your pro-choice friend the question, who should get the death penalty? Who should get the death penalty? Should we give the death penalty to the mother? Well, that's a horrible suggestion, right? And we would, we would quickly write that off. Now, why do I even raise that up? Or why do I bring up that question? Because in some countries, in some Muslim countries, they actually kill women who are raped because they have a culture of shame that says that if you were raped, that's something to be ashamed of. But we realize that that's deeply immoral because the what? The woman is an innocent victim. The woman hasn't done anything. Okay, should we give the death penalty to the rapist? Well, some people say yes. Some people think that rape is a sufficient crime to warrant the death penalty. But most people say no. And in our country, in America, it's illegal to, to give the death penalty to the rapist. Rape does not get capital punishment. So we don't give the death penalty to the mother. We don't give the death penalty to the rapist, who's the only guilty party. Should we give the death penalty to the unborn child, who's just as innocent as his or her mother? Well, I think the answer, of course, is no. But this is what the pro-choice argument contends, is that it is, it is acceptable and actually compassionate to give the death penalty to unborn children in order to spare the mother emotional trauma that will remind her of the rape that she went through. But unborn children should not be forced to suffer for the crimes of their father. Unborn children should not be forced to suffer because their mother endured an injustice. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Rape is an incredibly horrific form of injustice. And I will, I will condemn rape at every turn. But what pro-choice individuals don't understand is that abortion is wrong for the same reasons that rape is wrong. 
both rape and abortion involve the violent mistreatment of an innocent human being. Abortion ends in the death of a baby and some men who rape women end up murdering those women. But both acts and are, are the violent mistreatment of innocent human beings. So abortion is actually wrong for the same reasons that rape are wrong. So if you think rape is evil, you should be equally opposed to abortion and the killing of unborn babies conceived in rape. Because it is not just to assign punishment to innocent babies for the crimes of their father. The last ironic portion of this argument is that those who do support the death penalty of unborn children in the case of rape do typically do not support the death penalty for rapists. Think about that for a second. So in other words, we, they do not support the death penalty of the only guilty party, but they will assign that death penalty to a baby. That is not just. That is not compassionate. And research has shown that women who obtain abortions after being raped endure significantly more emotional trauma than those who just went through rape and kept their children. Mike Adams says that if a woman who is raped can't kill her rapist who is guilty, why should she be allowed to kill her child who is innocent? A good question indeed. So that is the second, the fourth mistake rather, is that they hide behind hard cases like rape to justify their position for abortion in any and all circumstance. Mistake number five is that pro-choice individuals confuse human value with human function. They confuse human value with human function. This is the argument that says that you must be capable of certain functions to be granted personhood and value. What are those functions? Well, it doesn't really matter because it's the born people who are more powerful and in charge that get to decide what functions matter to have human value. So it could be self-awareness, it could be consciousness, it could be ability to feel pain, it could be viability, it could be brainwaves that are detectable on a machine. It doesn't really matter. It's completely subjective. It's whatever the born people decide are the criteria and functions you have to have in order to have value. So they, conf they confuse your functioning as a human being with your value. And if you don't check all the function boxes that the pro-choice movement says you need to check to have a right to life, then guess what? You don't have a right to life and you can be dismembered. And this is really the most dangerous mistake that pro-choice individuals make when they argue for abortion because human equality ends up being destroyed. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in just one second. But of course, pro-life individuals have to, have to ask the question, why are those functions value giving in the first place? As a pro-choice individual, you can't just sit on high and say, okay, you can abort a baby because they can't feel pain. Well, what about when they do feel pain? Oh, oh no, no, you can still abort them then because um, they're not viable. They can't survive outside the womb. Okay, well, what if they can feel pain and they are viable? Oh, no, 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 you can still abort them um, because they don't have brain waves yet. Well, what about when they have brain? I mean, just, it's, it's entirely subjective. It's entirely subjective. Do you have to have one of those functions or all of those functions? Do you have to have them all at the same time or at different times? It's entirely subjective. And nothing about the possession of those functions are value giving in the first place because there are born people, right? Who wouldn't meet that criteria, who wouldn't meet that standard. There are born people, it's very rare disease, but there are born people with the disease who can't feel pain. So you can literally slip their wrist and they won't feel it. Can we kill them? Because one of your standards and functions that you say lead to human value is the ability to feel pain. Well, no, 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 no. Those born people still have value. Okay, well, then that standard's pretty subjective. You're not applying it consistently. Well, what about consciousness? What about if you're in a coma? What about if you're sleeping? You're not conscious. Can I, can I slit your throat because you're not 
practicing that function so you don't have value? Well, no, no, those people have value. See, so this is entirely subjective. It's not consistently applied. And these are arguments that are just used to dehumanize the unborn so that the suggestion that we can kill them seems a little bit more intellectually tenable, seems a little bit more acceptable. Additionally, if human value does come from human function and the criteria of human function, then infanticide is also perfectly acceptable because an infant would not meet the same criteria of functions that pro-choice individuals say the unborn needs to have value, right? An infant is not self-aware. An infant um, is not viable either in the sense that they can't survive on their own. They're viable in the sense they can survive outside the womb, but only with assistance. <laughs> they can't survive outside the womb if you leave them there and do nothing. They're going to die. So using these standards, you can justify infanticide. You can justify killing almost literally anyone, which leads me to my last point and problem with this is that human equality ends up being destroyed. Human equality is a myth because when you ground human value in, in accidental properties or in in human functions, like that could be skin color, gender, age, consciousness, ability to feel pain, you de actually dehumanize all human beings because none of us share those properties equally. Some of us have darker or lighter skin. Some of us are more dependent. Some of us are more independent. Some of us have a greater ability to feel pain. Some of us are uh, more conscious than others. If you ground human value and you say, what makes humans valuable are these criteria, human equality is destroyed. Because not only do not all human beings have those capacities, but not all human beings share those capacities equally. So does that mean that those who are more conscious have a greater right to life than those who are less conscious? Because if you're grounding human value in those criteria, that's what would follow. So pro-choice individuals confuse human value with human function when they argue for abortion, and they end up destroying human Equality. Lastly, of course, the question that has to be asked is where does human value come from in the first place? How do you even explain this human value? You're clearly opposed to the killing of infants and elderly or any born people really, but you're perfectly fine with the killing of unborn children. Now, pro-life Christians do have the best answer to that question. It's that human beings are created in the image of God. And because the same God who breathed out stars also breathed life into the human beings he created, life is sacred and life deserves to be protected. But even for those who reject the explanation of God as an explanation of human value, still are opposed to the killing of toddlers. They may not be able to explain where human value comes from objectively, but they're going to subjectively say that's wrong. Well, we can work off of that. These people still live in God's world. They abide by his rules. And so they recognize God's moral law that's written on the heart of man, even if they don't attribute it to God. <laughs> so we can still work within the confines of human reasoning that evidence itself because of God's moral law to say, if you reject the killing of toddlers and elderly because they don't have certain functions, you should equally reject the killing of unborn children because they don't meet certain functions. So at the end of the day, what pro-life individuals have to say is that human value is not instrumental, it's intrinsic. It's not based on what you can or cannot do because if you apply that to born people, you can justify slaughtering anyone, but it's intrinsic, meaning it's in virtue of being a human being to have value. That's what intrinsic means. It's not based on your instrumental good to others. Therefore, it can't be taken away. It's intrinsic. 
And this is what our country was founded on, the idea that human value and a right to life are inalienable rights. The government cannot give them, they cannot take them, they're created to protect them because they come from God and they cannot be stripped from you. That's what intrinsic means. And, um, and if, you, if you don't defend the idea that human value is intrinsic, it means that human value is instrumental. And if human value is instrumental, then might over right wins the day. Because those who are more powerful and sit on high get to dictate the criteria for human value. And if you don't check all the boxes, you're screwed. That is the problem with abortion. That is the problem with saying that human value comes from human function. This is the fifth and most dangerous mistake that pro-choice individuals make when they argue for abortion. So each of these five ways that many pro-choice advocates respond to the abortion issue are mistaken and misplaced because at the end of the day, they fail to adequately address the only question that really matters, which is what is the unborn, right? They don't address that single question. If the unborn is a human being like you and I, then abortion kills an innocent human being and is wrong. If they're not a human being, nobody cares. Have as many abortions as you'd like. But each of these five ways avoids the central question, what is the unborn? Avoids the central question of what makes humans valuable and merely resorts to fallacies in order to advance their agenda. Only by addressing and answering this one question, what is the unborn and where does human value come from, can we find moral clarity on the abortion issue and be true defenders and ambassadors of the unborn children in our midst. So I hope this was helpful today. Re-listen to it if you need to. Listen to me at a slower speed if you need to. Absorb this material so that you'll be aware, right? Now you're, you're prepared and equipped to identify all of the dangerous assumptions and all of the dangerous missteps and reasoning for those who argue for abortion. Thanks for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube and give this show a review and a rating so we can reach more people. If this was helpful for you and you think this would be helpful for others, share it, review it, give us a rating. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com. That's S-E-T-H. G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. And uh, check out my training videos. Check out my speaking schedule online if you want to come hear me live and locally. And subscribe to my newsletter so you can get training and updates and equipping to your inbox to defend life. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.